The Old Testament text is the 110th Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you know, uh, this series of sermons uh, is uh, entitled Favorite Psalms. And uh, I suspect that this is not one of your favorites. Uh, but nevertheless, it may be the most important psalm in the Psalter. Now, that might catch you by surprise. Most people wouldn't even put it in the top ten. I mean, you've got the first psalm, the eighth psalm, the 19th psalm, the 23rd psalm, the 51st psalm. I mean, you've got some great ones. But the reason why this one doesn't tend to make it into our list of favorites is that we tend to look at the world through the pinprick of our self-interest. Basically, you know, we think that if uh, you can't see uh, the significance of something when you look at it through the pinprick of your self-interest, there's no significance. Nevertheless, this psalm is the most quoted in the New, in the New Testament. Uh, it outnumbers the quotes uh, uh, that uh, you know, are from other psalms or, or citing other psalms uh, by a significant measure. In fact, uh, Christ used this particular psalm as a clue uh, to give uh, some sense of his divine status. If you remember in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, there's this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus quotes this psalm, the very first verse. Let me just remind you what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus asks rhetorically, whose son uh, is the Messiah or the Christ? And the Pharisees answer uh, confidently, son of David, of course. And then Jesus says, then how is it that David calls the Messiah my Lord? And at that point, the Pharisees say, I don't know. And then Jesus walks away. <laughs> In other words, that's as much as they're going to get. But it gives you a clue as to uh, the status of Christ as the son, not just of David, but the son of God. It's a clue. But uh, there are also uh, messianic connotations, particularly to verses 1 and 4. Uh, verse 1, as I noted, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 4, for, this, uh, for, the, for the Lord has sworn I will not change and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those are the two verses that are cited again and again throughout the New Testament. This is a prophecy about a Messiah who wins. Winning is great. Losing is not so great. 
We don't worship a Messiah who loses. We worship a Messiah who wins. He won a victory over death and the grave, and he's going to win a victory over everything else as well. And this psalm points to that. The clue, of course, is footstool. See that there in verse 1. Let me read it to you again because you can't read it too often. And I think the reason you can't read it too often is because so many New Testament writers cite it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This particular verse is the thesis statement, you could say, for the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews. In both cases, very early on, there is the reference to this verse by uh, Luke and then by Paul. In case you were wondering, I believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And uh, consequently, everything that sort of is developed within those books is, elaborates upon this particular insight. Furthermore, it's also the background of some favorite passages. Let me take you to a couple of them. Uh, one found in Ephesians. This one probably rings a bell. But there in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, uh, we see the Apostle Paul say this. And, this, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming in at mid-sentence. By the way, this particular sentence is the longest sentence in the Bible, so I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's like a paragraph. But Paul says there in verse 19, And what is uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above O rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then if you turn over to Philippians, just the very next book, you see something quite similar there uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, that makes it pretty clear. This is about the Messiah winning. This is about the Messiah exerting his authority and rule in this world and uh, there's uh, this reference to a footstool. And a footstool has, a, has some significance, uh, as we see in the Old Testament. Uh, David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, I think, it's verses, I think it's verse 26, he makes reference to his desire to build a temple uh, and the, the fact that he's not permitted to do so, but that his son will do it, to serve as a footstool, a footstool for God. The throne is above, the footstool is below, the temple is where the footstool is located, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And then, in a reference to the temple and its insignificance, actually, uh, we have in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, that statement, um, heaven is my throne, and the earth, not just, not just Jerusalem and the temple, but the earth itself is my footstool. In other words, subject to my rule. So there's a kind of double meaning here, but there's also a double meaning in the sense that this footstool is also the kneeling stool for us as we uh, 
acknowledge our subjection to our Lord, but also as a place of supplication where we can bring our requests and seek his favor. So all of this is in the background. And early Christians didn't miss the significance of this. In fact, they thought this was really the core of the matter, the thing that they believed is good news. Now, why do we miss it? Why do we sort of dismiss this as almost insignificant? Hardly ever think about it. Well, I think in part it has to go, you know, it goes back to my comment earlier about the pinprick of self-interest through which we view uh, everything in Scripture. But there's another sense in which I think there's a problem, and that is there's a kind of otherworldliness that we uh, suffer from in which there's kind of a wall of separation between heaven and earth in our minds. Um, now, this wall of separation is breached many times in Scripture, and we see things come together in particular people, and in particular, we see that occur in the case of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, as Paul says in Hebrews, um, is the one to whom Abraham, after the battle of the nine kings, in Genesis chapter uh, is it 14, uh, he brings a tithe to give a thanks for his victory uh, because he acknowledges that it is God Most High that gave him the victory, and, his, and through that tithe he is recognizing his debt and expressing his gratitude. But we're told that in Hebrews, and if you know Hebrew, you would have known this, that the name Melchizedek means, my king is righteous. He's a priest of God Most High, and yet he is a king. There's some insight here that I think we miss. Because we tend to view kings and priests as having different callings, it's hard for us to pull them together and think of them as sort of being embodied in a single person or those offices being embodied by a single person. But here we have it with Melchizedek. And by the way, this isn't something that was lost on other cultures, even pagan cultures. Pontif uh, Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus was one of the titles that uh, uh, was used to address Augustus Caesar. And it meant essentially that he was the high priest. He was not only the emperor, he was the high priest of the Roman people. We have statues of Augustus in his uh, regalia as priest. So there is a kind of good dream or good intuition that we see even in this sort of pagan environment where this sense in which both the, the priestly and the kingly roles are united in a single person. Now, I know that uh, in the back of our minds as Americans, there's uh, the thought, what about the separation of church and state? I mentioned a wall of separation between heaven and earth. I think as Americans, we tend to immediately turn to the wall of separation between church and state. And what do we do with that when we think about Christ and his lordship and the exercise of his authority and all things being made subject to him? One of the things I think it's worth noting or keeping in mind is that the phrase wall of separation from church and state, of church and state, is not in any uh, document that was uh, made sort of a, uh, a founding document of the United States. In other words, not the Constitution, nor is it found in the uh, Declaration of Independence. It's actually something that was an offhanded comment by uh, Thomas Jefferson to a bunch of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. Danbury's down near New York City. 
And uh, they express some of their concerns about the practice of their faith according to their own convictions. And it's in that letter, that personal letter, was written in 1802 that the term, the wall of separation of church and state, is used. Now, it's somewhat misleading because even at that time, in the state of Connecticut, there was a state church. The Congregational Church was the state church of the state of Connecticut until 1818. So, technically speaking, there was an established church in the very state, and there were other established churches in other states, at the very time that Jefferson wrote that in 1802. So it can't mean what it's often taken to mean, which is keep your religion out of politics. What we see, though, is that uh, there's a, something, though, as, uh, that we ought to keep in mind that's even the case today. I read an interesting book here recently entitled um, The Constitution of Church and State by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It was published originally in 1830. And in that book, he's reflecting upon the relationship of the church to the state. And he's also thinking about the nature of constitutions. And one of the things to keep in mind when you think about a constitution is as Americans, we think of a written document. There is a constitution. If you want to go and look at it, you can do that. Go to Washington, D.C. and get in line. And you can see it there under glass. But a constitution, properly understood, is a order. And when we think about the health of a body, whether we're talking about a human body or a political body, the constitution of that body is how well it's working. Its health is what's being alluded to when we speak about constitution. So this is an old-fashioned way of thinking or old-fashioned way of talking. Uh, once upon a time, people back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, would talk about going out for their morning constitutional. What do they mean? I'm going to take a walk. Why? Because it's good for my constitution. The written constitution that we have, which I'm very grateful for, was an attempt to codify the way of life that had already been in practice in the colonies. This was a set of English rights and responsibilities, a way of life that they already believed was something to be enjoyed. And what they were concerned about was they felt like their rights as Englishmen were being violated and they were engaged in a conservative revolution. Very different from the French Revolution. The conservative revolution was intended to preserve what was already the case. And because they didn't want to lose sight of what was the case, they wrote it down. This is all kind of stuff that you should have learned about in you know, middle school, but they don't teach it anymore. But anyway, that's what happened. Now, within a this framework of this book, The Constitution of Church and State, Coleridge is reflecting upon the relationship between the established church and the state, and something else he refers to, get this, as the national church. In Coleridge's mind, the national church was not the same thing as the established church. What he was getting at is that there is a kind of clerisy. By the way, the word clerisy is a word that he coined it's obviously related to clergy, but he wanted to make a distinction. He said, the clerisy are the intelligentsia of any civilization. Any nation has an intelligentsia. It includes everyone who uh, is educated and has influence, regardless of what their background is. Perhaps it's law, perhaps it's medicine, perhaps it's science, perhaps it's philosophy, perhaps it's something else. But the clerisy 
in a society is de facto the established church. Let me let you just kind of mull over that a little bit. What that means, in effect, if he's correct, and I believe he is, we have an established church. There is a clerisy that governs us, that influences public opinion, and it's explicitly, self-consciously, anti-Christian. I've been in touch with it pretty intimately my entire adult life. <laughs> and you might be able to associate or sort of, uh, you know, some experiences that you've had with what I'm talking about. What this means then is that there is a system of beliefs, a way of looking at the world, a worldview, if you want to use that term, that influences public life, legal practice, the way governments, governments govern, and it's just the way it is. It's just the fact. Now, in relationship to that, how should we think about the church and our role in our society? We have a leavening influence. By the way, the Western world owes a great debt to Christianity. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. In fact, a recent book, a recently published book entitled Dominion by Tom Holland, who is an atheist from the United Kingdom, notes that the Western world is the way it is precisely because of the dominion of Christ. Um, putting it uh, a little more strongly than he would have, he would, have, he would refer to simply the influence of Christianity. But there's no doubt that if you took the empire, the Roman Empire, and contrasted it with the world we live in today, huge difference is evident. And the only thing that he can attribute it to, and by the way, this is a fairly common view in the academy. The only thing that could explain this difference is the Christian faith. Now, tell me, where would you rather live? In the halcyon days of the Roman Empire, where there's a million slaves in the city of Rome, or the world we live in today? What's the difference? Even when it comes to science, this is one of the marvelous things that when you study the history of Western thought, you come to see that even something like science, which is this status of infallibility in our society today, owes its existence to the Christian faith. Look at Stanley Jackie. Look at a number of other uh, researchers on the subject. It's, it's not even debated. It's just simply ignored. Why is it ignored? Because if it were acknowledged, there would be a sense of debt. Now you know why, perhaps, in part, statues are torn down and defaced across the Western world. So we live uh, in a world where the churches already have an influence and the rule of Christ is already being felt. Nevertheless, there is an important distinction, and there is a distinction between Caesar and God, and we see it in Scripture. Going back to Matthew chapter 22, this time at verse 21, we see, again, Jesus being questioned. And the question is asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You remember the episode, right? And Jesus very cleverly says, any of you guys got a coin on you? And one of the Pharisees, oh yeah, sure. And he pulls out the coin. And guess what's on it? A graven image. Interesting. One of the Pharisees had a graven image in his pocket. But anyway, 
And by the way, that graven image was of a god, Caesar, who was acknowledged as divine. And then Jesus says, who is, who is that image of? And the guy says, well, Caesar, of course. And then Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And in that statement, he cuts through and exposes the, the heresy for what it is. Caesar is not God. By the statement, he makes a distinction. If he were acknowledging that Caesar was God, he wouldn't be able to say what he said. But the fact that he said what he said, he's made the distinction. Caesar is not God. And who is Caesar subject to? God. Caesar is subject to God and a servant of God, as we see in Romans chapter 13, given a task, executing judgment, maintaining the law, punishing wickedness. That's the task of the ruling authority. But Caesar is subject to God. Caesar is subject to Christ and is going to be held and was held accountable. Now, that's also true for the church. The church has a job, and that job isn't to run the government. It's to proclaim the gospel and administer the sacraments. And our hope is that through the leavening influence of the gospel, the laws and the culture are uh, enriched and uh, uh, render glory to God and uh, are a means by which uh, human beings flourish in a society. So with all that said, where does that leave you and me? Where do we fit into all this? I'd like to reflect on that with you for a little bit before I conclude. I think we see what we're supposed to do here in verse, in, in verse 3. And this is the only thing we're supposed to do, but it's one of the things. We see there in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely, freely on the day of your power in holy garments. We are to welcome that day. We're to look forward to the knowledge of the Lord covering the surface of the earth, as we see in Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 12. And we're to pray for that to occur. So when Jesus taught us to pray, when our Lord taught us to pray, remember that line, we're to pray, you know, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no wall of separation, in other words, between heaven and earth. There is a wall of separation in, this, in the sense that what is not holy cannot enter into heaven, but the wall or the distance is tra uh, transversed in the opposite direction. God's Spirit and God's own Son have come to earth to work among us to make us render acceptable service to God. And in the meantime, what we are to do is wage the peace. Wage the peace. Now, I'd like to think with you a little bit about the Pax Romana and the Pax Christi. This in the early church was often a, a set of things that were contrasted with each other. The Pax Romana, this is something to keep in mind if you read uh, the Aeneid, you learn that, first of all, the Romans believed that they were descended from the Trojans. I didn't, I didn't know that until I read the Aeneid. 
but it was common knowledge amongst Romans that is where we're from. We're from Troy. So when the empire, the Roman Empire, sweeps over Greece, it's sort of like payback in their minds for what occurred so long before. But uh, in that story, the Aeneid, which is really the epic of the Roman people, Aeneas, who's the father of the Roman people, receives his, receives his commission from his father in Elysium. He goes into the land of the dead, and there his father tells him that the role of the Roman people is to wage the peace, to bring the peace of Rome to the world. It meant that they were to bring the entire population of the world under the rule of the Roman people. That was their calling as Romans, to punish the wicked and reward the just. That's how they understood themselves. Now, obviously, that's not the way they were received. I'm not saying that that was what people thought of them, but this is how they thought of themselves. They waged the peace. And we can say that up to that point, it's hard to find another civilization where you see the kind of technical and economic flourishing that you can identify with the Roman Empire. In terms of what we were able to pull off before the coming of Christ, it's about as good as it got. But the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, was waged in a very different way. The peace of Rome basically went like this. If you don't subject yourself to the Roman rule, then we will destroy you. Like, really? <laughs> we will come in and just kind of wipe you out. And we have lots of evidence for that. But when it came to the Pax Christi, there's something else that's going on. Remember Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and authorities and the rulers of this present darkness. Now, what's that supposed to mean? That's very highfalutin, poetic language. Well, just turn back a few chapters or a book or two to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. In fact, let me take you there and read it to you. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And by the way, I've often wondered why we don't hear more about this passage. It seems to me that it answers the question, how do we wage this war? So there we see the Apostle Paul say, for we, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not uh, of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ. What's he saying? He's saying we wage war through persuasion. through argumentation, by making the case for Christ and witnessing to what he has accomplished. That's how we wage war. And we pray. So it's prayer and persuasion. Going back to Ephesians chapter 6, the statement that I, I, I paraphrased for you a moment ago is followed by the description of the armor. Remember that? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on and so forth. And then you get to the very end of the list, what do you have to do at that point? Pray, pray, pray. Paul says pray. So we pray 
and we persuade, and that's how we bring the peace of Christ, the Pax Christi. That's what we're called to do. And guess what? We win. That's the great news. We win. This isn't the place where we lose. This is the place where Christ wins. Never lose sight of that. Christ has won and is winning and will win. Now, our choices are real, uh, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, either with rejoicing or because there's really no other alternative. It just is the case. It is the fact. C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, I noted earlier that uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. C.S. Lewis said, in the end, in the end, at the final judgment, it'll work like this. Either we say to Christ, thy will be done, and we enter into his joy, and we reign with Christ, or Christ says, thy will be done. Depart from me. I never knew you. What shall it be? Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself, for our congregation, for those we encounter every day. Thank you that we see the leavening influence of your word and of the spirit as it's working even now in our society. We look around and we're dismayed by all the things that uh, seem to indicate that this is not the case. Nevertheless, for those with eyes to see, we can see that the wheat and the tares are growing together and the uh, and there are some remarkably wonderful things going on right now. They don't make the news. They're not in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. But that doesn't matter. They've gotten those, uh, lots of things wrong over the years, even though they never admit it. And we are glad, though, that you are the source of all truth and you interpret your own word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will help us to be faithful witnesses and wage the peace of Christ wherever we are. In Christ's name, amen.